I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. Coming up on The Trade Guys, we'll discuss USTR Catherine Tai's Capitol Hill testimony. We'll also talk about the impact of Russia's invasion of Ukraine on global food supply. And we'll dip into U.S. trade policy on solar. All next on this episode of The Trade Guys. Guys, I'm just back from a trip to Spain where I noticed there were a few Harley Davidsons. So like they haven't completely tariffed us on that. But more to the point, this week, USTR Catherine Tai testified before Congress. Some of the media was billing it as a change in trade policy. I'm thinking specifically with the Wall Street Journal. Did she announce a shift in our trade policy? Did I miss something here? No, you didn't miss anything. It's a defense of the old policy, not an announcement of a new one. It was a more aggressive defense of the old policy, partly because she came under greater pressure and she came under greater pressure from both parties, certainly the Republicans, but also a number of Democrats uh, for not producing any trade agreements or not doing any trade liberalization. Senator Cantwell was quoted in a number of publications as saying, you know, I'm for labor, I'm for the environment, but our biggest opportunity is to sell stuff to people outside the United States. We need to trade and we need more trade agreements. and. Her response was, no, we're not going to do that because we learned in the past, and I I think she was referring to TPP, that, you know, they benefit big companies at the expense of workers. They're not popular and we need to find a new, better way to go. That's the same thing she's been saying for 14 months. The difference was, I think the pressure on her to do something is is beginning to coalesce and it appears to be bipartisan. Yeah, look, I I couldn't agree more. This is a situation where the agenda really hasn't changed. There's not much to show for the first year of the administration when it comes to trade policy. There's, as best I can tell, next to zero to show when it comes to market access. And that's really ultimately what members want to hear. And that's where there's an opportunity to show ambition. There's an opportunity to deal with the great export potential that U.S. products have whether agricultural or manufactured goods or services, we just seem to lack ambition in that area. At the same time, the administration is focusing a lot of pressure when it comes to inflation, which is looking on the edge of being out of control. And one of the sure ways to tame inflation is trade liberalization, particularly on the import side. And so there's work to be done that can contribute to the economy. I just don't see anybody doing it. So... What did you guys think of the testimony from Catherine Ty? I mean, was it important? Was it compelling? Does it get us anywhere? Well, I think it sharpened the debate. I mean, she's very articulate and is very clearly invested in the policy that she's pursuing, which I think is the policy the White House wants her to pursue. I don't think she's off by herself. But it was pretty clear, particularly, I think, in the Senate Finance Committee on on Thursday, that there's a lot of people who don't think it's the right approach and think that trade liberalization is, continues to be important. 
I mean, she particularly took some heat on the Indo-Pacific economic framework, which we've discussed before, but the heat was because she has ruled out market access as uh, a negotiated item. And that has led the, the Asian countries to say, well, what's in it for us? If you're not going to negotiate market access, what do we get out of this? It's mostly a collection of things the United States wants them to do. And they're kind of waiting for the United States to say, you know, here's what we'll do to help you. And, you know, the administration is busy coming up with those things, but they're going to end up be sort of being non-trade things. And the farmers have been particularly critical because if, you, if you're a farmer, this is the major area for growth, you know, more exports. And they rely on the government to break down barriers and open markets. And I think they finally uh, complained enough that they've got the word agriculture now appears in Indo-Pacific Economic Framework documents, just one word, but at least it's there. And if you sort of parse through what does that mean, what it appears to mean is getting other countries in Asia to eliminate their barriers to American farm products. That's a good thing. But what's missing is give and take. You know, if you're going to have a negotiation, the other guys are going to come in and say, here's what we want. And so far, what Ambassador Tai is saying is what you want is off the table. And I think she's going to take increasing heat from that, not just from the Asians. I mean, they have a choice. They can participate or not. But she's starting to take heat from the Hill, which means the debate is framing itself and it's sharpening. And the interesting thing to me is it's becoming bipartisan. There are Democrats making this point. I mean, the Republicans making it was predictable. But when Democrats are starting to make it, that means this is going to play out in a way that, that she's going to be under increasing pressure to produce something. Yeah, the Congress is clearly more ambitious than the administration at this point. And that's, that's going to make life pretty uncomfortable over at uh, the Winder Building. Yeah, no doubt. Guys, shifting to the, the thing that is all-encompassing and something we can't take our eyes off of, Russia's war with Ukraine has clearly disrupted global food supply chains. Russia says that the WTO is not the right forum for discussing disruptions to the global food supply chain. What about this? Isn't the WTO one of the fundamental purposes of it to work to resolve these type of issues? I think so. The Russian position on that is ridiculous. I mean, if you're not going to touch it in the WTO, where are you going to touch it? You know, uh, there are other organizations like the World Food Program, but that's mostly devoted to helping get food to people that don't have it. The WTO is the primary place where rules and system and information sharing are, are developed. We're seeing exactly what happens when there's a crisis. We saw it in COVID, and now we're seeing it with the war, which is panic buying, hoarding, and government restrictions. And the Russians just did the last one. You know, they've now restricted the exports of sunflower oil in particular. Um, yeah, now, and, now, and now the Belgians... Have yeah. a massive <laughs> French fry crisis because of we've it. gone from guacamole to French fries, and now we have a free, know, a free and, crisis you know, in of Brussels. Both those things are very close to my heart, as you know, particularly French fries. And here's Too close the deal. to your heart, uh, Andrew, that gives you a cholesterol problem. You know, <laughs> that's right. So you know, I mean, the thing is, is we've all been talking about you know the global oil supply, crude oil. But now there's a problem with sunflower oil and, and mon dieu, the, the Belgians can't, you know, get French fries or they can't fry their French fries. It is a problem for, for that commodity in that location at the moment. To my mind, this is a much, much bigger crisis that we're, we're facing. And if the WTO, as Bill says, is the premier institution where this needs to be handled, there needs to be a step change in their operations. The way I see this, look, I think there's a lot to be worried about, mostly because 
of energy and fertilizer costs. So no doubt farming is more expensive, which makes food more expensive. But also we got a shooting war in the breadbasket of Europe. Okay, that's going to constrain supplies further in terms of what is actually planted and harvested and sold. So the fundamentals of this look bad. And while I agree with Bill that the WTO is the is the entity that should be handling this, there's 30 years of demonstrated ineffectiveness when it comes to agriculture. And this, starting with this, what I'd characterize as a swing and a miss at the end of the Uruguay round to include agriculture disciplines. What, what they did, all they did is frame the issue and left it for future. And that was, that was in you know, the early 90s. Since then, ag negotiations have focused on old issues. The common agricultural policy, which was a just post-World War II response to food shortages in Europe. U.S. ag policy has been under debate. This, this, these are programs that go back to the Dust Bowl. For me, the good news is there are 9 billion people on the planet, and we know how to feed 9 billion people, but we're not positioned to do it because there's no governance uh, arrangement that's situated to apply that know-how to the current situation. I, I mean, look, I'd love to see the WTO step up, but they haven't yet, and I didn't hear a thing this week or in the past month that they can. Uh, Bill, I may have missed something. You're No, there's a limit to what they can do to begin with. They've had an ongoing discussion about food stockpiling, which has been not a very successful discussion, largely because it's being driven by the Indians who want to create new rules that basically will allow them to subsidize their production more and get away with it. One of the issues that the WTO has wrestled with, Scott alluded to this, is for years is is agriculture, is farm subsidies, subsidies to farmers to keep prices high so farmers can make more money. And the WTO, under certain circumstances, permits those, but countries are capped in terms of how much aggregate support they can provide. I think the United States is like 19 billion or something like that. And when the farmers are in trouble, it's natural for governments to give them more help. And then you start bumping up against the cap. What the Indians want to do for developing countries, not for us, but for developing countries, is basically uh, allow them to bust through the cap and continue subsidizing their farmers, which I think in the long run doesn't help food supplies and makes everything worse. But it's such an intractable issue that it looks like this is under discussion right now, the WTO, but the goal uh, is not to solve the problem. The goal is to set a deadline of solving the problem by the next ministerial, which is the one that comes after the one this year. So basically, uh, you know, the agreement, if there ever is one, is going to be, let's take two more years to figure this out, when in fact, as Scott said, this has been going on for at least 10 years. At the same time, and I don't understand it, we seem to be stuck in this whack-a-mole supply chain crisis where every week there's a new one. You know, I get reports from my wife when she comes back from the grocery store. We had an event here at CSIS where this was a topic. Apparently, the current crisis is cream cheese, and nobody knows why, but there's a cream cheese shortage. Two months ago, it was dog food. And we didn't have a dog at that point. We do now. So we are going to be participating in the dog food crisis. But, you know, two years ago, it was toilet paper, and which we discussed at the time. Supply and demand seem relatively inflexible on a spot basis, you know, and these things come and then they go away. But then there's another one. And we can't seem to sort of restabilize the macro economy. Yeah, the cream cheese crisis is no joke. Yeah, we got to get that schmear. And one way or another. <laughs> right. right. There's no. no Philadelphia in any of the grocery stores, man. It's it's like people are. <laughs> yeah, it, it is amazing. But the key is, I, I think, at least from an institutional standpoint, from what the WTO can do, I think they got to stop thinking small. We, we're doing it in a lot of respects. We're doing it on individual products like the sunflower oil or, or cream cheese. 
We're doing it on fertilizers. You know, there's a 19% tariff on imported fertilizers from certain locations. It's an old anti-dumping duty that's been maintained, but farmers are paying extraordinarily high prices for fertilizer because it's basically you need hydrocarbons to make fertilizer. It's now even more expensive because of tariffs in place. So there's a nest of problems here that we're, you know, we've been at stalemate of the WTO on agriculture since 2008 probably longer. And it, this really needs leadership. Guys, what can the what, what trade tools can the United States and other international partners leverage to reduce this kind of stress on the supply chains? Well, that's a good question. In the short run, not a lot. I mean, a lot of the exercise is simply trying to identify them. And if you could identify blockages, sometimes it's a shipment, it's a shipping problem. You know, it's all the boats uh, anchored off of Long Beach in LA. And then there's some things you can do to try to uh, ameliorate those things. When you have a war, it's a little bit more complicated. You know, what the war has done basically, I think it is take 13% of the world's calories out of production. And some countries can produce more. I think the United States is probably one of them. But, you know, when it comes to food, first of all, you're locked into the weather cycle. You're locked into crop cycles. You know, in a, in a factory situation where if you're working eight-hour shifts, you know, you can add a shift and, you know, increase your production. Uh, in the farm, you know, in, unless you've got acreage that you're not planting, you're kind of restricted by the, the cycle. I think what the United States can do is, is sell more, export more, contribute more to food programs that are going to be help, helping countries that are hard hit by shortages. I mean, we're not going to have a shortage problem. We have a price problem because these are global commodities. And when the price goes up, it tends to go up all over the world. So price of wheat, corn, all the you know grains are, are very high right now. But we're not out of it. The people on the front lines are really Middle East and, and North Africa, well, and Central Africa, who really depended on Russia and Ukraine. And I've talked to some agriculture people here about that. And I mean, they see opportunities to get you know more sales, uh, but also, I think, more contributions. But then again, you run into new supply chain issues. I mean, do we have enough ships that have been going? A lot of the food exports have been going to Asia. So now we're going to start shipping to North Africa. We know where it is, but do we have the ships and the crews available to ship, you know, large quantities of grain? And, and are there relationships with the buyers there and the wholesalers and the distributors, which there may or may not be? This is a, it's a complicated problem, but it's also multifaceted here. Look, I mean, most grain is dried with propane. Propane is extraordinarily expensive right at the moment. So you have, you have high costs of fertilizer. You have high costs of seed. You have high costs of propane to dry the grains. Transport costs are up. This is a tough problem and it, it won't go away so quickly. It takes time to solve it. I mean, everything Scott talked about cannot be resolved by, you know, turning the light switch. You have to find new routes, new sellers, new buyers. If you need a new source for propane or if you need to find a different way to dry your crops, that it takes time to find that. And then you have to certify that whoever, whatever it is that you find is a technology that's accessible, uh, economic and scalable to the level that you, that you need. And I mean, this is what supply chain managers do. I mean, they, they, and there's a lot of professionals that are very good at it, but doing it takes time. It's not something you can solve in a week. I mean, it sounds incredibly complicated. It is, but but that's how you feed nine billion people. You know, it's which is an amazing achievement. Go back and read the reports produced fifty years ago by the Club Club of Rome and others. They were expecting much smaller population and famine, and we got a big population that has enough calories to survive, and and we have we move people to the middle class. So it's possible to do, 
But uh, what it takes is focus and leadership that I'm hoping the WTO can manage. They're definitely eating very well in Rome at the moment. <laughs> they always eat well in Geneva. That's it. Geneva has a thicker bubble than, uh, than Washington. So I mean, you know, the Cacio Pepe alone, tremendous. <laughs> Guys, let's shift before we close today. Let's talk about solar. Solar developers were not happy earlier this week with the Biden administration's decision to initiate a circumvention investigation into solar modules from Cambodia, Malaysia, Thailand, and Vietnam. So what's this all about? This is the third solar case in the Biden administration. What makes this one different than the others and what's happening with solar? Rant rant coming on here, fair warning. I did a column on this uh, this week called Hyperventilating. Okay, so this is a rant warning. You have yeah, listeners is, have a rant warning. You have a rant warning okay, here. Let, let, let's have it, Bill. I mean, if you listen to these people, it's like it's the end of the world. You know, if they hadn't granted the petition or accepted the petition, it would have been the end of solar production in the United States, and everybody was going to go broke and we we're going to lose jobs. And if you did accept the petition, it was going to be the end of the solar transition in the United States. Panels would be too expensive. Enormous numbers of jobs would be lost. It's sort of the end of the world, no matter what they do. And the reality is, is quite different from that. First of all, this particular case was not making a decision. It was simply deciding whether or not to conduct an investigation. And the issue was what trade wants call circumvention. There already are duties countervailing duties on subsidized solar panels that come from China. Uh, And that was controversial when it happened, but that's settled. We have those. The new issue that this week's argument was about was that suddenly panels started showing up from Southeast Asian countries, Vietnam, Thailand, Malaysia. And uh, the allegation is that these are really Chinese panels that are being shipped to another country in order to avoid the tariffs on China. And under U.S. law, that's called circumvention. And you can ask the government to investigate that and find out, you know, and and if they determine that it's true, then they can assess the Chinese tariffs on the panels from these other countries. So what happened this week is the government decided to investigate. So they have not decided that it's true. They have not assessed any duties. The only thing that has happened is that they've opened an investigation. And it's going to be, I think, a minimum of 150 days before they decide anything. So this is an issue that we get to talk about, you know, five months from now when a decision comes out. It's a little bit different from the last one of these. There's been a bunch of solar cases. And the most recent one was in February when the president had to make a decision about extending some other tariffs on solar panels and on solar cells that had been imposed on China pursuant to a different statute. And that was a decision the president got to make because it wasn't based on subsidization or dumping or anything unfair. It was based on, you know, we're getting killed by these imports. Does the U.S. uh, industry need time to adjust and recover? It's called a safeguard, Section 201. The president decided to continue those tariffs with some exceptions, and that was controversial when he did it. Uh, And now this new one comes along. This one's different because the president doesn't have anything to say about it. You know, the way our law works, it, it's, it's simple. If the other country is doing something bad, dumping or subsidizing, and if the Americans are injured by it, then tariffs go into effect. You know, it's not a policy decision. It's automatic. And that's why the stakes are kind of high. You know, if, if commerce finds that this circumvention is occurring, they're going to impose more duties. They're going to shut a lot of panels, solar panels, out of the country. The people that install them are very upset. 
because they won't be able to get to uh, install them. And in fact, they have, there's a lot more jobs in the installation industry than there are in the manufacturing part of the industry. But the American manufacturers say, this is a critical capability the United States needs. We need to be able to make our own panels. And if all these dumped and subsidized panels come in, we're going to go broke. That's the policy. Issue. Well, just to make two points in, in closing. First, I want to note that it's it's April 1st. And the first of the month, the rant is due. So we're, we're, <laughs> we're fortunate that Bill was able to deliver. It's also April Fool, so you can ignore everything I just said. <laughs> it, was but, a good, it was a good rant. But the, the, the second you. point I'd make is this is one of the things that happens in every administration is you get mixed signals. Because on the one hand, the administration wants to move toward renewable sources of, of energy, like solar panels, and there's lots of subsidies and incentives for doing that. On the other hand, they're taking actions that raise the cost of the materials and installations. So, And this happens all the time. It's not any individual to blame. In fact, it's usually multiple policies. But it, you step back from it, it looks like there's a government trying to build a self-licking ice cream cone of, of some sort. And it's, it, it's hard to justify I think people should just relax. There's going to be an investigation. I've always supported trade laws. I help write them, including this particular one. So I have an interest in making it work. You know, if people are cheating on the rules, I think it's appropriate to assess a penalty. But let's wait and see what happens. You know, it's not proved. It's alleged. So give the Commerce Department a chance to figure it out. And, you know, if you want to panic, panic then. It's too early to panic now. I, I, I'm relaxed. Yeah. I, you know, I, I am chilled. So I, you're just, I'm not you're just back from Spain. Yet. Of course you're chilled. <laughs> <laughs> and they don't have a free crisis. So <laughs> right. at least not yet. Right. Maybe they use olive oil on their frites. Uh, you know what? The olive oil is wonderful. Driving through Andalusia, seeing the millions of olive trees was quite a sight. Gentlemen, thanks for your awesome insights. And we'll be back next week on this same trade channel. Listeners really appreciate you tuning in. Talk soon, guys. Thanks. Thank you. To our listeners, if you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the Trade Guys react to it. You've been listening to the Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.